Okay, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, as we pull everything together, as, as Paul has been working with Timothy, trying to encourage him in the faith, trying to encourage him to rekindle the faith and the spark that's within him, that gift within him to continue the work that the Lord had given him there at Ephesus as the pastor of this church, that we're looking at it in general as well as what God would do in our lives to equip us and prepare us to, to do the work he's called us to do, to be men who are the men of God we should be. So we're looking at these final words of chapter 4, Paul's final words written in the scriptures, and so those are vital for us. Uh, and we need to have a good picture of what the uh, man of God looks like, and that is so essential, and that's part of what we're doing in this book. I don't know how many of you like to do jigsaw puzzles. My wife is into all that, and I, I really don't do much of that very often. When I do, I frustrate her, because every time I get a piece in the puzzle, I, I hallelujah myself, and uh, she gets pretty tired of my arrogance very shortly. So I, I don't do a lot of that, but I've done a little bit, and, and I thought about, uh, what if you had a puzzle, let's say a thousand-piece puzzle, and you're working on all this, and, and then, but you have the wrong lid to the puzzle. Now, some of you might like that challenge. Uh, I would not, uh, but I, I think if you, here you got the wrong picture of what it's supposed to look like, and you got all these thousands of pieces of blue and white and green sitting there in front of you, and the wrong picture. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, if we don't have the right picture, we're going to have a very hard time knowing how to put the puzzle together. And so I think, again, a, a lot of what Paul's doing here and a lot of what we need is the right picture. What does the man of God look like? What does God say we are to be? What, what is that portrait of the man of God who is uh, serving the Lord in the ways we've looked at so far? And without that picture, without knowing what it is that we are to become, uh, then we kind of are, are a hodgepodge. We become whatever. And, uh, and we're not going the direction he wants us to go. <clears throat> and so we're looking at, in this last chapter, at uh, some of the things that, that we need to know to, that as he summarizes. He's, he's going to pull it together in just a small book, but he summarizes his major themes, and he hammer, hammers home what he's expecting Timothy to do, and he's encouraging him to press on the ministry one final time. And so as we look at this together, how is Paul going to encourage Timothy to be the man of God he should be. And there's going to be two means that he uses here. First of all, a charge. And we see that in the first five verses of chapter 4. And he begins here in, in this verse, let me read verse 1. I, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is a very formalistic charge. It was common in the, uh, in the Greek world of this time to have these kinds of charges for people, to charge people to do something. So this is more or less an, uh, an official ceremony uh, of sorts for Timothy. Here is what God is charging you to do and to be. And so he's commissioning him back to the ministry to rekindle afresh that gift, that privilege of ministry. And as he does so, he is charging him in that way. Now, there's nine different charges here that we're going to wrap around four themes in just a moment. <clears throat> but before we get to the charges, 
I want to focus on the motivations. Because in verse 1 that we looked at, there are a number of motivations that are preceding the charge. And I think these motivations speak volumes to us who want to be men of God. The first motivation is the, is the presence of God himself. In verse 1 he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You know, I can think of a <clears throat> hardly any more solemn perspective on ministry than this. I live out my life. Uh, you live out your life. I live out my ministry. You live out your ministry in the presence of the Father and the Son. Uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. We are constantly in his presence at all times. Uh, again, going back to the Asbury revival, one of the things that are, is kind of concerning is the idea that the presence of God is localized somewhere and we have to go there and pick it up. That certainly is not the biblical picture anywhere in Scripture. We live out our entire ministries, our entire lives, uh, whether we're in private or whether we're at home or whether we're at the church or whether we're at work or whatever, we're living out our lives in the presence of Jesus Christ and the Father, and that should be a powerful motivation, I think, for us. It was said back in the day when Bear Bryant was the coach of Alabama, one of the great legendary coaches of, of college football of all times, that his, he always had great teams, and one of the reasons he did is because the players knew that on Monday, or whatever, first part of the week, Bear Bryant was going to go through all the tape all the film. And he was going to watch not just the quarterbacks and the, and the halfbacks and so forth and all the big players. He was going to be scrutinizing every player on the team. And so it was said that the players of Alabama played so well, not because of the fans or because of the other players or even for themselves, but because they knew the bear was going to look at the film. And they played their hearts out for Bear Bryant. Now, if that is even a, a miniature of what we ought to be doing before the Lord, I think it's instructive because I live out my life not before you. You don't really know me. I don't really know you. I don't live out my life before my church people who do know me pretty well. Uh, I'm not here to impress. I'm not here to, to let people think I'm a certain way or not. I'm, I don't even live my life out before my family per se. All those things matter. But ultimately, what really matters is I live my life out in the presence of the Father and the Son. Uh, they see me. They know. And this is not to intimidate us. This is not make us cringeful. This is to let us know we live out our lives with the greatest, most powerful of all witnesses, one who loves us, the one who's empowered us, one who cares for us, and one who, who has sent us into the work for him. I live my life out before him. That's the motivation. Now, second motivation is the judgment of Jesus Christ. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, and the dead. <clears throat> I don't think it's real popular today to see Christ as a judge. Uh, we want a more positive message than that. We don't want to think that anybody's sitting in judgment over us, even if it's Jesus himself. But when we understand this rightly, we find that this is a very wonderful and a powerful uh, motivation for the Christian life. I want you to go back to 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's, let's look at this judgment and what it might mean to us. 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 10 and 11. 
What, what kind of judgment does he have in mind here? Let's start with verse 9. He says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So I think we're back to the same thing. I'm living out my life in the presence of the Father and the Son, and I want to be pleasing to him. So of all the motivations I can think of for living the Christian life, I don't think you can get much higher than this one. I want to live to please him. And uh, what, uh, all other mo- motivations have to be somewhat inferior to that. But he goes on to verse 10 and talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we must all appear, he's talking, I believe, about Christians here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so ju- Christ is our judge here. And we are going to be recompensed or rewarded, he tells us, for our deeds done in the body, this life, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Now the word, I think it's important to understand here, the word for bad here in the Greek is a word that does not mean evil. It means of value or worth, worth something of worth. And why that is important is this, if I understand it correctly, there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins will never be brought back up. Our sins have been covered by Christ. Uh, We will never again be judged for our sins because Christ took those sins upon himself. So he's not talking about standing before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and our sins are trotted out for the world to see or even for us to see. I I remember growing up, I grew up in a bit of a fear factor church. It was a good church in many ways, but there was always this fear factor that uh, that one day based on verses like this, in in heaven at the judgment seat, the Lord was gonna roll out this gigantic film of all the sins I've ever committed, all the bad thoughts I've ever had, and and I can't imagine uh, how much time that would take, you know? And how intimidating is that to think that uh, not only myself, but the whole world will get set there and look at all the evil things I have ever thought. Not just said and done, that's bad enough, but thought. That was very intimidating to me as a young man. And I'm glad to learn from scripture later that that's not the case. Instead, he's going to talk, he's going to reward us here according to what we've done, good or bad. The word is, speaks of what, that which is profitable. And so he's talking about those things. We're going back. This is a reward seat. It's not a judgment seat of, of, of like a criminal court. We're rewarded here, like a like a the bema seat, the, the award seats at a at a track meet or something like that, where you get to have the rewards. And and what's going to be judged here is not my sin, which Christ has taken care of, but the, how valuably I have lived my life, how profitably I have lived for His glory. And that might not take long. That film might be pretty short. Uh, I don't know. I hope it's a little longer than, than I might think. But hopefully there are certain things that are of value in my life. And some things that are worthless, those things are going to be chucked. But the things of value, there will be reward for. And I believe that's what he's talking about is Christ being our judge. And, and again, we don't know sometimes what those are. I think we get the idea that the, the big celebrities of Christianity the big names that we all know, 
Well, they're going to just have this gigantic hour-long, hour-long films of all the accomplishments they've done in life. And yet I have a hunch, and I think I can base it on Scripture, that that is not necessarily the case. That in many cases, perhaps the people that are most wonderfully rewarded are people we've never heard of. People that had just minimal gifts, minimal personalities, minimal opportunities, who remain faithful to the Lord Jesus throughout their whole life. And we, they will be rewarded for that faithfulness at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we have that here. here. Here's a second thing that we see concerning that. We, we have the pot negative that our, our worthless stuff will be discarded. Secondly, the positive will be rewarded for that which is of value. But thirdly, look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, I think there's another wrinkle to this, another part of this. He is saying that one of the reasons we persuade men and women to walk with Christ, to come to Christ, to be saved, is because we know of the fear of the Lord. That the unbeliever will face a, a, a con condemning judgment. And because we know that, we want to persuade them to walk with Christ and come to Christ and be saved by Christ. And if that's the case, then, then Christ being our judge also is another motivation for us telling others about Christ and living a life of, of light and salt so that others see Christ in us and desire that which is within us, that the world might know that we are his followers because we love one another. Remember that passage where Jesus tells us that? What a great passage. And that, and, and that presupposes, by the way, that we're living among Christian people that are very imperfect. It is not hard for me to love the lovable. It is hard for me sometimes to love the people that irritate me and take up too much of my time and too much of my effort and are not on my page personality-wise. They're not socially where I am. Those people are t more difficult. And yet the world will see that we love those people too and know that we are followers of Christ Jesus. So this, this should motivate us. I like what C.T. Studd, the former missionary, said from many years ago. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue ship within a yard of hell. Uh, he was motivated in that way. Spurgeon said, and I love this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Well, that ought to be our heart, shouldn't it? That we want others to know Christ. We want to pray for them. We want to, to bring them to him. And so as we go back to our passage of scripture, <clears throat> he is the judge. He is the judge of us who are his people. He will be the judge also of those who do not know him. And we want others to know him as well. Here's a third motivation by his appearing. His appearing. Christ is coming back. That is the word for his return. He is coming back. The, the return of Christ was never meant to be a theology that divided Christians, that, uh, that uh, split churches and fellowships. It was meant to be the blessed hope that Titus talks about, the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Not every Christian is on page about the re timing of Christ's return. And we're, we're, I think it's legitimate that we have different church structures that might differ over that. But, um, 
But all Christians, all true Christians believe that Christ is coming back. And because we believe that Christ is coming back, that ought to be a great motivation for you and I living presently for him, right? Shouldn't that motivate us to know that one day, maybe in our theology, if we're right, and I think we are, and he could come back before this conference is over. He could come back at any moment. Are we prepared for that? That, that? that very fact should be one of the great motivators for being men of God, that his appearing is coming. <clears throat> and then, uh, and, and as I think about that, I think when we have people over to our house, we do extra cleaning. You do that? I think that's why a lot of people don't ever have anybody over. They don't want to clean the house. You know? So our house is usually pretty neat. Our, our kids are gone. Uh, my wife is uh, pretty neat, and I, I'm only messy in one or two spots, you know, where I eat and so forth and drop things on the floor, and she can clean up around me pretty quick. So it doesn't take too long to clean up our house when we have people in. Uh, but when we are having visitors, we clean the bathroom, we make sure things are where they ought to be. It's a little extra cleaning, right? And, and so if we know somebody's coming, uh, we get the house ready. If we don't know they're coming, well, we can be surprised. And so the Christian is, shouldn't be surprised when Christ returns. We are prepared for his return, and that motivates us uh, to live for him. And then there's a, one other motivation mentioned here, his kingdom. Uh, when Christ does appear, he comes with his kingdom. Now, we spoke about post-millennialism a moment ago, uh, and we spoke about Christian nationalism with a different view. But when Christ comes back, he's going to bring his kingdom with him. The kingdom that he speaks of here is not a spiritual kingdom. It's a, it's a literal kingdom promised throughout all the Bible. It's promised many, many times in the Old Testament. It's prophesied in the New Testament. Many details are given to us in both Testaments. This is not some kind of metaphysical, uh, philosophical kingdom, even a spiritual kingdom. This is a literal kingdom with literal features and spiritual features as well. The new covenant will reign during that time. And so when he comes back at his return, he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. And we're going to be part of that. That kingdom ultimately bleeds into the eternal kingdom. And uh, we are looking forward to that return and that kingdom. Jesus said in uh, John 14, he goes away to prepare a place for us. And he'll come to take us to that place and to be with him. And, that king, and in that kingdom with him is where we will be forever. And that kingdom should motivate us <clears throat> to live as God would have us live. And so those are the motivations behind the Christian life that he's been talking about here, the charge that he's going to give Timothy. Now let's begin to look at the charge. What's he going to tell Timothy to do? Now remember these are among the last words he ever gives us from the inspired text. And so they're important words. And there are nine charges, as I mentioned, nine different th individual things he says. But I think we can wrap them around four themes. First of all, he has to proclaim or preach the word. In verse 2, he says, preach the word. That word preach means to proclaim. So he's not just talking to a preacher. I mean, Timothy obviously did that. But most of you don't. Some of you do, but most of you don't. But you are proclaimers of the word in action and in your families and in your uh, regular life, whatever you do, you are a proclaimer of the word. 
And so he is telling Timothy, I charge you to be a proclaimer of the word. And we've talked about the word throughout our time together and what that looks like. And we are to build on that foundation. Let me, let me just refresh your memory just quickly. You can flat, uh, page back through the text if you want to. But he started out in chapter 1, verse 13, and told us to retain the standard of sound words. In verse 14, he told us to guard the treasure of sound words. Chapter 2, verse 2, he told us to take the teachings that the apostle had given him, the inspired teachings, and pass them on to other faithful men. In chapter 2, verse 15, he, he told us to accurately handle, cut straight of the word of truth. In chapter 3, verse 10, he said, follow the apostles' teachings. In chapter 3, verse 14, he said, continue in the things that the apostle had taught him. Chapter 3, verse 15, the sacred writings could bring, him, bring people to salvation. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it is the scriptures that equip us for every good work, sanctification. And now, and, and often overlooked is chapter 2, verse 17. And 15, 17 says, avoid the, the talk, the man talk, the worldly talk that is not God talk. Avoid that. To be experts in God talk. So we put all this together. And what we need to do, he says, is to be proclaimers of the word. Here it is. Here's what the word does. Here's what it does in our individual lives. Here's what it does in our churches. Uh, here's what it's meant to do. Here's its design. It's sufficient for life and godliness and for all good work. And so we should proclaim that. Let us not be ashamed of it. Let us not back off of it. Let us proclaim it. Let us let the world know and our Christian friends as well that we are people that believe in the word of God and his power to transform lives. <clears throat> now, our culture is never going to get into that, never has, didn't in the first century, certainly isn't doing it today. And so he marches on and says, be ready in season and out of season. So there are seasons of, of cultures and ministries and so forth. There are times when people seem to be warming up to the word of God and following it and hungering for it. I, I assume that a, a lot of you here today have come out on a Saturday to spend a day together because you truly hunger for the word of God. This is something you want. Uh, you, you want to be fed. You, want your, you have an appetite for that, and you want that. And I assume that, uh, that some of you are not there, and this is not your appetite. You want it to be, perhaps, but you've not developed the appetite, perhaps, for those things. And so he tells us here, look, uh, you're, that you're gonna, as you minister the Word, you're going to have audiences that are mixed, uh, and there's going to be seasons. There's going to be times when men and women desire the word and hunger for it and the ministry seems to be blossoming and there are going to be times when people don't care. Some of you have been, who are pastors and ministers uh, and servants of the Lord for a long time have been through those seasons. You've been in situations where no matter what you did, no matter what you're doing right now and how hard you're trying, very few people care. That's painful, isn't it? It's painful to be involved in, in that kind of thing where you put your whole heart and life on the line and most people don't care. But what, what does he say to do? Proclaim the word. Be faithful in season, out of season. And then there are seasons where things seem to turn around. 
And, and people are hungering and people are coming back to these things. And we're ready because we've been doing it all along. And the Lord is blessing that ministry and that fruit. So no matter what the culture is telling us, uh, we need to be giving the word. Don't, don't cave into the culture. Uh, the, someone has said, uh, if people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. Somebody's always making a calf to please people. And exhibit A or people like a Joel Osteen or different ones who have these gigantic ministries that are telling people what they want to hear and not what God says. And we look at those things, and even more locally, you might have churches around you that are, are thriving, but they're not preaching the Word. And that bothers you, doesn't it? You know, I, I'm faithful to the Word, and we're teaching the Word, and we got a handful of people over here that want to faithfully follow. And over there is this church that's growing by leaps and bounds, building new buildings every week, and they're preaching a false gospel. What's about, what about that? That's hard. And it's very easy for us to cave and say, you know what, I am going to follow the fads. I'm going to give people what they want to hear. The book that I assume are some still out there, This Little Church Went to Market, that's what that was about 15 years ago. Churches that were caving in to the culture. And that is why today we have a, a, an evangelicalism that is almost entirely biblical illiterate because they caved into the culture. Be ready in season and out of season to proclaim the word of God. Now our messages, our proclamations are not always perfect. We're, we fail at times, but our job is to be those who continue to proclaim in season and out of season. We had a, we had a staff meeting last week, and we have, we're starting a church about 35 miles from us, and our church planner was at the staff meeting, and we were talking about you know, the, the ministry of the word and uh, how it isn't always perfect. And when uh, we're thanking the Lord that even in, in bad sermons and in bad ministries, the Lord still has his way sometimes in the lives of people. And we're glad for that. And this church planner guy was, was really funny. He said, yeah, his wife says every week, I'm so glad the Lord can use bad sermons. <laughs> and we immediately jumped on that and said, she tells you that every week? You know, that's, that's going to be painful. You know, that hurts. Of course, he misspoke on that. He actually is a good preacher. But uh, we're thankful the Lord doesn't require excellent, perfect, uh, airbrushed preaching and teaching and living because we wouldn't get much done. But he takes things often that are not very good and he uses them for his glory. And we thank him for that. Well, we move on. That's the first charge. Here's the second charge. That is to do with correction in verse 2. He says, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and, uh, re see, and, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So the next thing he wants to talk about is correction. Uh, the need for correction has occurred many times, and we've already looked at it this week. Uh, this seems like a week, it's just been one day, right? Uh, in 2.14, uh, he talked about this in verses 2.25 to 26. We're talking about correcting those in gentleness or in opposition. In 3.16, we see the Word of God is correcting those who are going astray. Uh, is this just reserved for pastors and elders to be doing this kind of correcting? I don't think so at all. I think the Word is speaking to all of us. We have different audiences, different opportunities. 
There are people that uh, I can't reach, but people in my church can. Uh, there, there are young people who are, who are dedicated to Christ, who can, who can really have a ministry in the life of other people who are 16, 17 years old because they're showing an example and they care. Uh, there are people in women ministries and, and other ministries. I, I don't know these people. I can't, I can't effectively minister to them, but they can. Uh, we shouldn't be cowards about these things. Uh, we should be willing in gentleness and love to reach out and to correct. Uh, far too often in my ministry, when somebody needs to be corrected, uh, they, say, they call me up and say, Gary, you need to correct this person. Well, I don't appreciate those phone calls much. I know you wouldn't either. Why don't you try first? Why don't you go to your friend and see if the Lord will use you in their lives? I'd be glad to step in, but I would think you would do that first. So correction. Now, here's the three terms. To reprove is a word that means to point out sin. <clears throat> I was talking to one of our, the men here today. If, if you know, if somebody knows you are going the wrong direction, Shouldn't they love you enough to call you out on that? Gently, in love, but to come alongside you and say, you know what, my friend, you're going the wrong direction. We need more men who are willing to step up and be men and say to other men and whatever, you know what, you have a problem, you have an issue, I see that, I want to come alongside and help you. That's the word reproof. The word rebuke is a stronger word. It's the idea of what happens when re reproof doesn't work. There's a rebuke, of a strong, solid rebuke of what they're doing. And then there's exhortation, the word exhort. That's more positive. It's the idea of begging people, calling people, exhorting people to follow the Lord, perhaps often with a broken heart. Because people don't often, always do not want that. But nevertheless, we want to help them. And be aware, if we try to correct somebody, remember back in chapter 2, where it says that you might be wronged? Be aware that if you try to correct somebody, they may not appreciate it, no matter how gently and lovingly you try to do that. It is said that uh, when someone criticized Michelangelo's unfinished last judgment, he painted that critic in the scene as the prince of hell. Okay? That's the way many people react to any form of a criticism. And so it makes it hard. That's why people don't want to do it. But love forces us to do so. That's part of the charge that he gives him here. And then there's the charge related to truth. In verse 3 he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. <clears throat> and so he calls the, on Timothy to deal with truth. Truth has shown up all over this book. Chapter 2, verse 18, some have gone astray from the truth. Chapter 2, verse 25, repentance is needed to come to the knowledge of truth. Chapter 3, verse 7, some never do come to the knowledge of truth. Chapter 3, verse 8, some oppose the truth. And now in this verse here, some will turn away from the truth and will turn to myths. That is, they'll turn to the man talk, ideas of men, instead of God talk, the ideas of God. 
And so that's a sad thing, but that's what people will do. And Tim, what is Timothy to do when people reject the truth? What are you to do when people reject the truth? We're to preach the truth anyway. In season, out of season, cutting the word of God straight, giving it, giving it to people in love, but nevertheless proclaiming the truth to people. And that is not popular today. It's not popular in, in the general population. And sadly, it's not very popular in our churches. Uh, I know the, the pandemic did some funny thing, interesting things to our churches, didn't it? Uh, throughout the country, uh, statistically, a pretty good percentage of people never went back to church. Uh, that's, that's, that's a general picture. I don't know what that number is, but it's pretty heavy. Uh, right now, uh, it's dropped about 10%, maybe 15% in the last two or three years of people going to church. They got used to online church. Some people really like to sit in their jammies with a cup of coffee and, and uh, watch the show. The other day, one of, our, one of our guys, one of our staff guys, believe it or not, was on vacation. He was watching live stream of our sermon and he tried to pause it so he could go get a cup of coffee and he forgot he was live stream. You can't pause live stream, guys. You're getting the point? It's live. Can't do that. Okay, but people have gotten used to these kinds of things, have gotten used to that, and they don't go back. Or many simply are not, it's much easier not to be involved in a church and involved in that kind of truth. And people don't want to hear it. In the pandemic, as I think happened here in talking to Rod and some other individuals, <clears throat> it ended up being quite good for us. Uh, most of our people eventually came back, except for a few old that couldn't come back. But we did have... Um, a number of people that found us during the pandemic because we were open and we were doing live stream and we met for about a month, maybe six weeks in our, we have a backyard facility which is really good for this and people came in and, and went to the outdoor service where their churches were closed down and the funny thing happened is a lot of people that were coming from very fluffy churches found out that they, people actually took the word of God seriously. And I don't know how many people have told me, people that come from so-called evangelical churches, that they never heard this stuff before, that they never heard the basics. They never seen anybody pick up a Bible and teach through a book of scripture or, or even a passage of scripture. They'd never heard of that, never even knew it existed. Uh, the one, one family that eventually joined our church said, what do you call what you do? You know, I said, well, I said, uh, expository preaching? Oh, okay, that's... Okay, we weren't sure. You know, we've never seen that before. Okay, and that's, that's a good thing that people have seen that, but most people don't want that. Uh, most people hear the Word of God taught and they would rather hear something else, especially if it's entertaining and wonderful, you know, just a great show. Uh, the biggest church in our town is following this fad where they have movie night or movie Sunday and people are dressing up like uh, Ewoks or, uh, or these other movie characters, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever, are all are coming in dressed up and they're having sermons about the, those movies. You know, and drawing great crowds. And the biggest church in town by far is doing that. And they think that's going to church and hearing the word of God. I hear a lot of people say, that guy's a great preacher. Really? What did he preach on? What Bible passage? So, you know, they love that kind of stuff. So when we come to the preaching of the word, a lot of people could care less entertain us, give us great music, keep us happy, teach the Word of God. Why? That seems kind of old-fashioned. 
But we don't give that, have that option here. He charges him to be a, a proclaimer of the truth even when it's being rejected by the majority of people. Then he moves on in this passage of Scripture, and part of that, that ministry, he says here, is verse 4, or verse 5, But you be sober in all things, and do a hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Remember, he's talking to Timothy, a man who is kind of growing weary in his ministry, and he doesn't pull any punches, he doesn't coddle him. He says, you're going to have hardships. This is not going to be easy stuff. But you do your work. You tell people about Christ. You fulfill your ministry. You, you, you endure those things. And that's the final part of the charge, part four. Endurance. Endure with hardship these things that come our way. Over and over and over in this book, Timothy, uh, Paul has told Timothy those very same things. So the minister of Christ here is to be sober. That means serious. That means he takes these things seriously. He, he is sensible in these things. This is what people need to hear. Most people don't know what they don't know. Do you know that? <laughs> and, and most people don't know what they need to know. But what they need to know is what is found in his word. And so let's fulfill the ministry God has given us to be those kinds of people. Endurance. Soberness. So those are the charges. Now he, gonna, he closes out the main portion of the book with one more thing, an example. He's talked about the charges. Now he leaves, lays out an example. And these are the final words of the, of the Apostle Paul as far as the teaching in the epistle is concerned as he'll, he'll not write any more books. He does have some final personal items but his final charge, his final words to Timothy have to do with an example. And he uses himself as the example in three tenses. First of all, the present tense. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Um, Paul describes his present situation with two images. He's a drink offering. Now that should remind you of the Old Testament uh, system of worship in Leviticus and, and other places. The drink offering followed the, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings. It was gradually poured out uh, as part of the sac at the end of the sacrificial cer uh, ceremony. So it pictures Paul who now is pouring out his life as a drink offering for the cause of Christ. He has mentioned that earlier in his epistles. He doesn't mind. As a matter of fact, he, he glories in being poured out for the cause of Christ, his life being poured out for Christ. His life was not his own. His life was Christ's, and he was being poured out as a drink offering and sacrifice in that sense for him. And then second image is of departure. He says, my departure has come. I find this interesting. It's kind of a nautical thing. It's it speaks of untying a boat that's tied up to the moorings. And the rope has been untied, and the boat is starting to drift out to sea. And so Paul believes he's about to die. And uh, he is about to drift out to sea. This is his final song. And there's no bitterness here. There's no angst. There's a calm assurance that he's completed the work and is going to his reward. For me to live is Christ, he said in Philippians, and to die is gain. 
And so as he sees himself drifting out from this life and this ministry, there's no self-pity. He is simply drifting out to what God has for him. And that's his present situation. His past, his past situation is verse, four, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's a past tense here. Well, how has his life been lived? Now, these are among us. We're coming in here to the end here. We're coming to the final words of the Apostle Paul. I've always been intrigued with the final words of somebody who knew this was it. Because that you would think that if you're laying on your deathbed and you got enough energy to say a few more things, that whatever you would say would be of significance, wouldn't it? I would like to think so. One elderly lady who never married and died leaving, she died leaving a request with her pastor that no male pallbearers be used to carry out her casket. And she wrote in her instructions in her hand for her memorial service, she wrote this, they wouldn't take me out when I was alive. I don't want them to take me out when I'm dead. Okay. Yeah, that's her final words. Right? She, she got the last plug in there at the very end. Okay? Uh, the, the philosopher, the atheistic philosopher Voltaire wrote his last words where it's a bad joke. Life is a bad joke. The short story writer O. Henry, his last words were, turn up the lights, I don't want to go home in the dark. Paul now is giving us his last words. What will he say? Well, he, gives, he summarizes his life in three pictures. What a beautiful picture. As fighting a fight, running a race, and guarding a treasure. Paul has completed the fight. He's ran the race, and he's guarded the treasure. All three of these actions in the context of 2 Timothy is of the sound words of the faith. It has been a hard fight. If you read the life of the Apostle Paul, it has been a very hard life. It's been a, it, 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 matter of fact, the word here is the word agony. He knows what agony is about. It's been a long and difficult race. It wasn't a sprint. It was a hard marathon. It, it has been a battle to guard the treasure of faith and the word, the word of God, but he's done that. But now he looks to the future, and as, as he does that, he says, I have kept the faith, I have fought the fight, I have kept, finished the course, and I've kept the faith. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of your life? That I have been, had my ups and downs, I've had my failures and successes, but when the, when the dust is settled, I can say with the Apostle Paul, I fought the good fight, the good fight, many fights in this world that we have to go and to go, but this is the good fight. And I have finished the, the course that he set before me, and I have kept the faith that he told me to keep and to live out. It's almost like he's going, wow, I finally made it. I got to the end. And then he turns to one more tense in verse 8, and that tense has to do with the future tense. And he says in verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, reward me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. So what's the future look like for Paul? I've always been 
interested in, if I watch a horse race, I've always been interested in the home stretch. I find the, the strategy interesting. These horses are running down the two-thirds of the track and they're jockeying for position. They're, they've got a strategy, they've got a plan. And they, but when they turn down that home stretch and they see the finish line in front of them and a possible victory up ahead, they pull out all the stops and the strategy is gone. They're just going for the finish line. And I kind of picture Paul here in the same way. In the future, I've, I've seen the finish line ahead. I finished that course, I see ahead for me a crown of righteousness, a, 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 a reward for, for thy service with him. And the Lord is going to give me that crown of righteousness, and he will give it not only to me, but for all who love his appearing. And I don't think he's just saying for all that want Jesus to come back, but for all who live their life in such a way that they recognize they've lived their life before the Lord Jesus Christ and have loved their, the appearing even as they have lived their life to glorify and, and please him. And so that's Paul's final basic words in this epistle, which speaks, I think, to, to all of our hearts. A young pastor gave this illustration that I'll close with. He had always wanted to take his little girl to see uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on the big screen. And so... When she was old enough to go, finally they went. And he sat in the theater with her, and she was mesmerized by the movie. She uh, laughed at Dopey. She got mad at Grumpy. She cringed before the evil queen. As the movie uh, progressed, and they sang the song, Someday My Prince Will Come, the little girl's eyes shined, and she grabbed her dad's arm, and she said, Daddy, the prince is coming. The prince is coming. And we know the story didn't turn out quite like that. Uh, the, things turns bad. She ate of the bad apple. She falls asleep and nobody can wake her up. Not even the dwarfs. They're waiting for the prince to come. And finally the prince comes and kisses her and she awakes. And this young preacher, like all good preachers, is looking for an illustration. And as he's thinking about this story, he says that we're all in that boat. We, we're, we've all eaten of the bad apple, so to speak. We're all corrupted by sin, and we're all in the, in the power and the sway of, of evilness. And yet the prince is coming. And one day that prince is going to come, and he's going to kiss his bride, and he's going to take his bride to be with him. And even now, he said as an application, even now, every once in a while, when the word of God is going forth, the prince shows up, and he kisses somebody, and they wake up. And that's what you and I are about telling people about the Lord Jesus, and he's coming, and he's worth living for. He's worth everything. And that's the message Paul has for Timothy, and that's the message I think he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your word. We thank you for this short study through 2 Timothy. I trust, Lord, it's been of value and a profit to the ones that have come today. Thank you for these men coming, for their attentiveness, and uh, just for them being here in Jesus' name. Amen.